Welcome to Prioritize Your Mind with Jeffrey Lewis. We will offer strategies for improving mental health through informative interviews with local, regional, and national experts. Good evening. I'm Jeffrey Lewis. Tonight, we'll explore the mental health challenges children, families, and teachers are facing in a COVID-19 world. In California, I believe our mental health system is broken. COVID-19 is worsening our mental health, challenging our families. Some teachers are struggling to teach over a computer while juggling the needs of their own families. And we continue to face the challenge of secondary trauma and its impact on teachers, administrators, parents, and school superintendents. I'm pleased to be joined tonight by two amazing and brilliant child psychiatrists to help all of us understand what we can do for our children, our families, our teachers, and most importantly, each other. Please welcome Dr. Neha Chowthury, She is currently a double board certified child and adolescent psychiatrist, and she is the co-founder of the Stanford Brainstorm. And in her spare time, she's also teaching at Harvard and runs her own telepsych practice. Her work is focused on helping parents raise healthier children through the everyday use of things that are easy to do. We are joined by Dr. Stephen, Stephen Sust. Stephen is an assistant professor at Stanford whose clinical work is focused on child and adolescent psychiatry. Dr. Sust is on the staff of the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital and is also part of a team of child psychiatrists at Stanford who have created a communication health interactive for parents of adolescents. Let me welcome you both and thank you so much for joining us. Let's start talking about anxiety and depression. Can you help parents understand what signs and symptoms they should be looking for? Thanks so much for having me, Jeffrey. I really appreciate it. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. There was actually a recent article that came out in the New York Times. Some of you may have seen it. It shares a new report by the CDC that reported rising levels of anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, and substance use. And what they based this off of was a survey that they conducted in June of this year, which they compared to a survey from the second quarter of last year. And they found that the rates of anxiety were three times higher and depression was four times higher. So I know this is a very relevant question for many people right now. And it's on a lot of people's minds. The way I like to to describe this is this. Anxiety in, and I'll speak about anxiety first and then depression. Anxiety in adults looks a little bit different than it does in kids. It's more characterized, more commonly characterized by worry or restlessness that adults can or, or are more likely to be able to describe. But in kids, it can look like being short fused, being sensitive, quicker to react, getting frequently angry with a really small trigger, not sleeping much and not having much of an appetite. Younger kids especially will report having symptoms in their bodies, like headaches, stomach aches. So that's definitely something to look for. Some kids also tend to pull away from their friends. Others start changing their habits, like using more screen time, isolating, staying in their room, and for older kids, even turning to substances. 
Now, there's a lot of overlap with some of these symptoms of anxiety along with depression. In depression, we see things like sleep, appetite, energy, and concentration affected. And kids may have that same sensitivity or what we call mood reactivity clinically, where their reactions appear to be out of proportion to the, the trigger or whatever the stressful event was. Um, kids with depression often also report having a lot of negative thoughts. It's almost as if they see the whole world through this negative filter. So you want to look for more, um, more common negative thoughts, lower than usual self-esteem, maybe crying more often, having more anger outbursts, isolating, not seeming interested in the things that they used to do. And of course, any safety concerns, like any thoughts of suicide or more passive thoughts of wishing that they weren't alive anymore. The important thing to look for, if there's one key takeaway for parents, is look for changes from your child's baseline. Because as a parent, if you have a gut feeling that something's off, it's likely to, to seek help from a professional because you would know possibly better than anybody else. Stephen, let me follow up on that. And what can parents do and teachers to help reduce anxiety and depression? Well, the, it's one of the great things in like a like a, the parent-child relationship. I, I I think for every child, having a trusted adult in their life is one of the most crucial crucial things. That I realize that by the time they get to my office, um, there's been some missed opportunities to connect with some of those trusted adults. Um, and so towards that end, um, I'm gonna follow with some of my, my somewhat childish uh, background here and to talk about this movie um, from, from Pixar called Inside Out, where Riley, the main character, goes through a massive transition in moving to the Bay Area. And a lot of her, the, the stress that she's trying to suppress um, comes out in sort of unpredictable ways. And one of the final resolutions in it is that acknowledgement um, from that, that she's very upset about the transition and her family coming together and acknowledging that and sort of being together in, in that depression and some of that anxiety and mourning that, that transition. I think there's something incredibly powerful about parents and children being able to sit down and have really honest, non-judgmental discussion around how, how troubling, this is, to put it lightly, the new normal is and how important it is to have those conversations and to have that understanding and to be able to channel a lot of that empathic listening that we keep on droning on about, but to really put it into practice and to listen and not try to solve the problem. Don't judge. And to really be able to try to understand things that the kids are anxious about or things that they're really sad about. Because if you can't talk about it and have an honest discussion about it, um, much like Riley, it could boil over um, as they try to sit on it because they don't want to bother you. They don't want you to, to they don't want to worry you. You're already worried enough also. Again, very important for the child to have some sense of normalcy when they see that they're not the only ones going through it. Are there such things as mood boosting activities that you can recommend to parents to sort of help with some of this? So here are the five big ones that I recommend to families because they're very accessible and that they can do at home and they can do them rather quickly. The first one's exercise. So moving your body, getting your heart rate up, it's not only healthy in the long run, it can release feel good chemicals in the brain at the time of exercise, or if even just going for a walk, just moving your body at all. 
The second one I like to talk about is music. So music similarly can release those feel-good chemicals as well. It's almost like a natural antidepressant or natural anti-anxiety for, for some. The third one is being out, going outside and being in nature. So studies have shown that just five minutes outside can reduce stress and boost mood. And I don't know if that's from moving your body, getting clean air or oxygen, I mean, fires aside, or if it's just something about the greenery, but there's something that it physiologically does that does end up having a mood boosting effect. Now, number four and five uh, parents, or these first three are a little bit more familiar to folks. Number four and five are a little bit less familiar in that they can have direct effects on mood. Number four is expressing gratitude. So listing things that you're grateful for or telling people what about them you're grateful for can actually boost your mood. And the beauty of that is if you write down your gratitudes, then you can refer to them later. You can read them and feel good in just remembering what you were grateful for on another day that you wrote that down. And then if you express gratitude to somebody else, you're potentially helping boost their mood as well. And then the last one that I really like is helping others or giving. So studies have shown that that can also release those chemicals in the brain. The, chemicals, the chemical itself that it, it releases is a little bit different, but it still has a mood-boosting effect. So those are probably the five that I do. Exercise, music, being in nature, expressing gratitude, and then helping others or giving. Uh, any tips on how to communicate with teens about mental health and their emotions? Oh, how to communicate with teens about mental health and their emotions. I apologize. I misunderstood the question. No, it's okay. Well, it's just uh, my poor pronunciation. Not at all. It was too fancy for me. That's a great so, word. It's a great word. I'm going to have to start using it a little bit more. So here's what I tell parents when it comes to how to communicate with teens. I, I really like this question a lot. I say you want to start by meeting teens where they're at because if you don't do that, you're just going to get forced back. You're going to get resistance. Their eyes and ears are going to be closed off and nothing's going to get through. So that, what does that actually mean? It means approaching the conversation with an open, curious mind, putting your own judgment aside and listening to their perspective on whatever it is that they want to talk about in terms of their feelings. Because if you as a parent walk into the conversation with your own ideas to share without truly wanting to hear what they're talking about, again, they're going to take it as that force coming at them and they're going to give you a force back. So if you go in wanting to learn what, what's their experience, what are they feeling? What are they thinking? If you truly believe that your own demeanor is going to change and so will theirs. You'll create an environment of something that we call psychological safety, where you end up saying, Hey, I value you. I want to hear from you. I will not judge you. And it's okay to be who you are and want what you want and feel what you feel. And I would say that that's the primary thing that teens need in communication. And if you can find a way to practice and strengthen that, you'll see that communication improve over time. Now, some parents say that they ask their kids how they're feeling and then their kids don't respond. They seem annoyed. They pretend they're not there. And then, so the parents stop asking, but I've found that even though teens might say that they want you to leave them alone or to go away in their hearts, they, they still want you to ask because to them, it's, it's showing that you care. It's saying, Oh, you cared enough to ask me why did And then, then they notice when you stop, they're like, Oh, why did mom and dad stop nagging me? Do they not care about me anymore? They want to be able to push and push and they want you to keep pushing back and saying, Nope, I'm going to be present. 
I'm going to be present for you and, and here in a consistent way. And I'm ready to communicate when you are. And one other thing I'll add is if verbal communication doesn't work, I would not hesitate to try other forms. So I have teens that for whatever reason, they might feel awkward. They just don't feel necessarily comfortable and, or it's not natural for them to speak to their parents about their feelings. They write notes to their parents. They, or I have younger kids jot down how they're feeling uh, through even the use of smileys or little emoticons or sad faces on a calendar that's kept in the kitchen um, because it's just less daunting than saying it out loud. So at the end of the day, you want to find that communication style that works for your family, but you want to do it in a very open, non-judgmental way and create safety around communication. Yeah, I, I have to agree. Creating that safe space is is just so, so important. And if you can create that safe space, it open it opens the the well, opens the possibilities for young people to maybe spontaneously talk about things, but you know, not to stereotype men, but we don't have the best you know, we, there's not, we're not the best at talking about our thoughts and feelings around things. So for a lot of families, I actually encourage them to, to again, taking a page out of the media, I, I encourage them to watch movies together. I mean, I'm not uh, uh, an Asian female, but in watching Crazy Rich Asians, there were certain amounts of feelings that were stirred up as I was watching the way, you know, the, the main character was being brutalized by the mother-in-law. And I understood the perspective of the mother-in-law also. So it was a very rich sort of movie. And I would encourage families to not necessarily always feel like you have to directly ask the child what their feelings are, but that you can get at it with one degree of separation by watching a movie. Um, you know, crazy rich Asians if you wanted to, but you know, even Coco watching Coco was for whatever reason, I was just having these feelings of, of, you know, sadness as the, as, as the main character just wasn't able to do what he wanted to do. And being able to talk about that as a family, um, being able to talk about that conflict, being able to talk about what would you do in the situation if I brought home somebody that you mom and dad didn't approve of. These are all great topics to talk about and to talk about early on. Um, believe it or not. And for some kids, it might not even be on their mind, but um, it doesn't have to be for them personally. You could even talk about other friends they've heard about who have been in these kinds of situations. And being able to talk indirectly about this gives you that window into what your child's thinking and is the beginning of the, a lot, what'll be a, a longer lifelong conversation with your child about those, <laughs> I know, about those, those, those topics. And Better to start it now than to hear about things later on is, is, is sort of my perspective. So that's just my one tip for, for families. I love that, Steve. It's almost like the idea of asking for a friend. Not yeah, myself oh, directly, but no, a no. friend. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 it's Jeff. You know, he, he has the, you know, the, these sorts of issues happening and what he wants to do with his life. So Even in 66, yes. Let me, uh, let me throw a, uh, something different at you. If a parent suspects that their teen is depressed or suffering from anxiety based on behavior or reactions to a current situation, what do you recommend a parent do, particularly if the child is unwilling to talk to the parent about it? Before you said the unwilling to talk about it, my inclination was, to get help because it's just easier. And then as a parent, you don't have to worry. Am I making the right decision? Do I need to escalate to getting professional help? Do I not? But then when you added in the piece about this kid potentially not being willing to talk about it, it makes me even 
more concerned that you may not get there or you may not get there in time. And it's all the more important to just have them directly connect with somebody who is impartial and a professional that might be able to get through to, through to the kid in a different way. Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that. Um, I encourage every single parent who's listening to this now to really think about, think it over with, with their loved ones around who are the trusted adults in your child's life, and particularly thinking about who the trusted youth are in the child's life also. When you have um, difficult conversations like this, it's going to be particularly important to know who those people are and to potentially have them try to utilize some of their, their rapport in the relationship and trying to triangulate and gather some more information. Towards that end, um, for a lot of the kids who don't uh, want to talk about it directly with the parent, I, I think that highlights another problem also. And for a lot of those families who come to me with that, I usually encourage them to reach out for professional help and not have it be like, oh, this is the child's problem. No, this is our family's problem and that we're going to talk about this together. We're going to get through this together and have it again, not be, this is the child's fault, but to again, have them see the healing and restorative nature of what happens with families that are able to talk honestly and non-judgmentally and to be able to work through a problem, whatever it might be. And that, you know, we still love each other. We're not going anywhere, et cetera. So um, it can be difficult, but I, I think the biggest barrier for a lot of children, a lot of young people is feeling like this is my fault and I'm the one that's broken that needs to be fixed. And that's just not true. Well, ending on a positive note and a note, and a note of hope. Thank you both. Um, one of the people in the audience asked if there, you have an online uh, social media platform, an address you want to give out for people, uh, or you can email to me and I will share it with everybody who enrolls. So we'll do that. So send them both. If you'll, Stephen, if you'll send it to me, I'll share it with the crowd. And once again, thank you. It was an inspiring conversation. You were both just amazing. And as I said, it will be before we began the live conversation. I look forward to having you in Turlock. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, Steve Edelshine, too. All oh, right. yeah, yeah, you got to talk to Steve. All right. Thanks so much. It's great Thanks to so see much. you both, and thank you so much for participating.